smartcast you are listening to a mint production brought to you by hd smartcast hello and welcome to mint dialogues a weekly podcast where we focus on the big questions in personal finance and investing my name is neel borate and i head the personal finance team at mint I will be your host for this podcast. The podcast is a Mint production and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcast producing platform. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. Today we have a very interesting discussion planned on two subjects that dominate the headlines today. Uh one is China and the other is drugs. Um so we are discussing um India's history with the opium trade uh, to China and to help us understand all of this we have Sifra Lenten from Gateway House welcome Sifra hi Neil Sifra so can you tell us uh, this very interesting background on how uh, India and Bombay specifically was involved in the opium trade with China it actually started in uh, quite a small way uh, Bombay was not known for opium trading it was actually bengal that was known for opium trading and uh, the bengal opium trade was completely controlled by the english east india company and uh, what they did opium being a banned substance in uh, china what they did was they controlled the hinterland that grew the opium so they had complete control over how much the farmers grew they processed their opium in their factories they packed them they sent them to calcutta for auction so the east india company did not actually dirty its hands with the actual smuggling activity of opium to china so this was known the opium going out from calcutta port was known as the bengal and the patna opium and this was a smoother and a higher quality opium what was happening on the west coast was bombay was a small city growing city without a hinterland like calcutta we all know that calcutta after the battle of plassey and battle of paksa really got a huge hinterland it got bengal it got today's bihar a up so it was a huge hinterland while bombay did not have a hinterland so opium was being grown in the vicinity of bombay in central india in what was known as the malwa plateau region which is what would be the kingdom of the sindhias today the one of the kingdoms one of the local or native kingdoms and uh, malwa opium was being smoked smuggled through the portuguese ports at daman diu as well as small quantities were slipping through surat i mean surat was a big port and through bombay goa was another big port for uh, malwa opium smuggling what happened was that uh the east india company started getting reports the calcutta east india company started getting getting reports that malwa opium was preferred by the chinese peasant or the common man instead of the bengal opium and was commanding a higher price in the canton market so as a result of which they tried to stamp out opium smuggling from bombay the minute they tried to stamp out opium they banned it actually in 1805 the minute they tried to stamp up stamp out opium smuggling the the merchants who were based in bombay they were all big merchants they tried to smuggle opium out of other ports the portuguese ports being a prime example 
Karachi was another port. That means uh, the Talpur leader of Karachi or the king of the the leader of Karachi was the man who was also supervising or allowing this kind of export. The Kutch ports were used. Goa was used for opium smuggling. So, however hard they tried to stamp it out in Bombay, it was going out from other sources. It was finally that they realized in 1825 that they should profit from it and allow opium to come through Bombay port. Right. So, to break it down, they initially said that only they would manufacture and uh, facilitate the export of opium. And then they realized that it was happening anyway in Bombay. So, at one point, they gave up and they said, fine. Indian merchants can do it as well. It wasn't just Indian merchants. It was also the European trading houses in Bombay who were doing it, uh, Neil. And uh, it was, and the difference between Calcutta and Bombay was that in Calcutta they had complete control. In Bombay, they could only get this, get the taxes or tariffs. That is, for initially they started with a very high tariff of 175 per chest of opium. Then they brought it down to 125, and actually with 175 per chest of opium, no one was bringing their opium through Bombay port because it was not really profitable for them. It was as they started lowering the tariff that that uh, Bombay became popular as an outlet for opium smuggling. Right. And Supra, why was opium, uh, why was, why were the British so eager to export opium to China? Uh, it was, it was simple. They had to balance their balance sheet, literally. They were spending more to buy tea at Canton than they were getting from their exports from India. So one of the big exports at this time and continued to be a big export was cotton. But cotton prices sort of fluctuated depending on the uh, depending on the crop in China. So if the crop was then cotton prices or cotton bales would command a high price in the market. It was a question of supply and demand. If the cotton crop was good, then the margins that these merchants had or the East India Company had on its cotton exports was very, very fine. They needed to find another commodity. There were other commodities, Neil. I'm not just saying that cotton was the only commodity. There was teakwood also going to China, amongst other things. But the bulk was cotton. So they had to find another commodity that could command the same kind of, uh, you know, that kind of, which was demanded in great bulk and quantity and which was highly profitable. They needed the silver to buy tea at Canton. That was the bottom right. line for that. Right. So they needed to pay for the tea that they were importing, essentially exporting a more right. potent drug for a less potent drug. Um, yes. But coming to opium in India itself, um, was it legal to grow and consume opium in India? And within the export section, who were the families or the merchants who were deeply engaged in this business? See, I'm familiar with the Bombay families. And uh, I would say in Bombay, just about every merchant community was involved in the opium trade. So, I mean, people single out the Parsis, but it was the Parsis, the Armenians, the Jews, the uh, Hindu merchant families like uh, the Gujarati Banyas, the Marwadis, even the Muslims. I mean, uh, Muhammad Ali Roge, you know, who built a big Jama Masjid in Bombay. He was involved in the opium trade in a big We had the Indo-Portuguese. 
also who were like Roger D. Faria, who was who was a big merchant in Bombay, really one of the big opium merchants, who was also involved in the opium trade. So you cannot say any one community. It was a legal activity here in India, but it was illegal to take into China. Right, right. But if you would give us one or two famous names that are big even today. Mm-hmm. See, uh, the Tata family had some trade in opium. I mean, it was it didn't dominate their trade, but opium was one of the things they exported to China and uh, along with cotton and other goods to China. So their Far Eastern agency was actually very strong. But I would say that uh, the two big families from Bombay were the Sassoon family was very big in the opium trade. But after the first opium war, so they were really big. The Tatars also were big because their Far Eastern trade was big, but they were also diversified into other things, as were the Sassoons. The Sassoons were big in the mill industry. So I can't say, you can't say that this was all they did. This was just one of the things or one of the items they exported from India. And one must remember that after the first opium war, it was a legal activity. It was legal to export opium to China under the Treaty of Nanking. Right. Um, but was it legal to consume in India? Why was there not a sort of culture of addiction built in India around opium? See, uh, you know, actually opium was smoked, I mean, in the hookahs and uh, across West Asia. It was it was something that it was a sort of a recreational kind of drug. I mean, and uh, even in India, it's been known for ages and the Arabs I do know from history, used to carry opium to southeastern China also. Across this entire swath from West Asia to the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia to China, opium was smoked as a recreational drug. It's just that the imperial Chinese emperor banned it because people were getting addicted to it. In order to stamp out the addiction, he banned the import of opium into China. But in banning it, what happens when you ban things, the addiction seems to take on more monstrous proportions because people find some way or the other to get it, to get the drug. And one of the ways was uh, actually the uh, trading. The East India Company actually actively encouraged, as did the Portuguese government and other native kingdoms, the export of this drug into China. Right. So, Sifra, just to sum up, um, the East India Company in India actively produced opium, uh, manufactured it, but they wouldn't touch the actual sale of it to China in the initial few decades. That was done by Indian merchants. Mm-hmm. So, quite a few Indian fortunes were built on the backs of this drug. And eventually, then what happened? Did it just become less popular? Uh, what happened was that China trade after the first opium war, it, you know, Neil, it's also a question, it's not just a question of buying and selling. It is a question of how you repatriate your money back to India. After the first opium war, Indian merchants found it very, very difficult to send their money back to India. This was one of the problems Jamshidji Jiji Boy, really the first baronet, faced was in repatriation of funds back to India. So after the first opium war, there were a lot of players at Canton. It wasn't just Indian merchants and English agency houses from India, but there were Americans, there were Germans, there were French, there were Portuguese, there were the Danes, there were the Dutch. Everyone was involved. In fact, the Dutch used to export opium from Surat before Bombay even came into Bay. So 
everyone was involved in this trade and at least as far as our bombay merchants were concerned is getting money back home became difficult so the trade became consolidated in the hands of just a few families who were big operationally and could manage to set up branches in the treaty ports right from canton to shanghai and uh, even i mean later on they even they had far eastern agencies like the tatas had one in uh, yokohama in uh, nagasaki when you have your office there you find it easier to manage the financial transactions too after the first opium war what happened was earlier the system was that the indian merchant would give his silver on selling his opium would give his silver to the english east india company resident in canton and would get a bill of exchange like a hundi and take payment in india that system stopped after the first opium war so as a result of which the trade became a little complex for smaller merchants right right and eventually of course china and uh, britain also banned opium export to china mm-hmm. is that correct yeah through treaty because uh, the emperor mm-hmm. i mean it was uh, decided finally opium also didn't you know once the trade was opened out and became legal it didn't command the kind of price that it did it became a commodity just as any other commodity of course large quantities were still going in but it was regulated and on being regulated finally uh, it was it was decided in the early 20th century to ban the substance completely so it was a banned trade and of course even in england sentiments were sort of raised you know people started questioning why the government was allowing the trade into china so right. that's Indeed. when it was eventually banned Indeed. so there you are folks we turn up our noses at a lot of things that were at one time quite happily done in india and among them is opium an interesting episode and perhaps with lots of lessons for today's policy making as well thank you so much sifra thank you neil Thank you for tuning in. We will be back next week with a fresh episode. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at neil.b@livemint.com. To give us feedback, you can reach out to us also on HT Smartcast. We are present on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn and Clubhouse. To listen to more podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com. और सुनो नए नजरिए से दिस वॉज अ मिंट प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट